Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We've been looking at what faith is. As the author of Hebrews has been reminding us from Hebrews chapter 11. And one of the things that sometimes happens to us when we look at Hebrews 11 and we see all these examples is rather than this chapter being an encouragement, sometimes we are overwhelmed by this chapter because we think, oh, look at all these people who had faith. I I, I don't know if I can live like that. And I think if any of us are thinking this way this morning, about Hebrews 11, I would say we're still thinking about what faith is in a wrong way. See, when you think of what the author of Hebrews is doing, is up till now what the author of Hebrews has been saying is God has revealed himself finally and fully in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He's the final revelation. There's nothing beyond him. He's the ultimate prophet and priest and king. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater Joshua. He is in whom you will find eternal rest, not a temporary rest. He is who will bring all of God's promises to pass, even all the future promises that are yet to be realized. He's the one who will fulfill the destiny of man, and man has hope of being glorified because Jesus became man. He's the one who will bring God's kingdom into this world. He is the final and eternal priest. He is the final and eternal and sufficient sacrifice. He's the one who mediates a greater covenant with greater blessings that we are part of right now. And so the author up to Chapter 10, his whole point is, so Jesus is the great one. He has done it all, he is doing it all, and he will do it. So, hold fast to the confession of your faith, he says. And then, when he comes to chapter 11 and he talks about faith, it almost seems like sometimes we have a switch in our brain. Okay, it's all about Christ, he has done it all, and he will do it all, and come to chapter 11, or it's all about me and all about how much faith I have to exercise. And it almost goes against the logic of what the author of Hebrews says. Because that is not what the author of Hebrews is talking about regards to faith. Because faith, as we have seen, is simply entrusting yourself to God and what he has said. Faith is seeing God for who he is and seeing what he has said will ultimately come to pass. Faith is looking at God and as he has revealed himself in Christ and saying, he does it all and I simply have to entrust myself to that fact that he is the one who holds me, he's the one who sustains me and he's the one who will accomplish all these promises 
And I simply have to cling on to that. See, it's not, okay, he's holding on to me and I have to somehow hold on to him. No, just simply don't let go of the fact that he is holding on to you, that he does it all. That's what faith is. It has nothing to do with how big our faith is or how small our faith is. It is not a confidence in ourselves and in our ability. It is a confidence in him and what he has said. Faith, according to the Bible, is not blind faith. It is faith in God and what he has revealed in his word and especially in and through his son. You know, just to make this even more clear, I, I, I just want to, you know, one thing that came to mind was even when Jesus talks about in the Gospels that if you have faith, even like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, some, some people read that to say, oh, you know what, I don't have that much of faith and it's because I don't have that much of faith, I can't move these mountains because that's what Jesus said. When in reality, Jesus is not saying you need to have that much faith. No, Jesus' point is, if you have faith like a mustard seed, if your faith is that tiny, what matters is not the size of their faith. What matters is in whom you are entrusting yourself to. And if you're entrusting yourself to God, and it is God's will to perform a miracle like moving a mountain, then he will do it. What matters is not some quantity or strength of your faith. What matters is that you are entrusting yourself to him and his promises and his ways. It is trusting the fact that he is the one that is holding you. And don't let go of that fact. It is not saying you by your strength have to hold on to him. It is simply saying, recognize he's the one who's holding on to you and don't let go of that fact. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, so when you entrust yourself to God and his word, the things hoped for in the future, the things that God has promised, the things unseen, they as you entrust yourself to God, they will become substantive in your life. They will become more real in your life. And one of the ways it becomes real is that when you entrust yourself to God and his word and his promises, something of what is promised you already begin to experience. Whether it's something of the grace of God. Whether it's something of the joy of walking with God whether it's something of sins forgiven or, or, or in some other way, you, you get a taste of all the ultimate blessings that will be realized in the future. And so faith, as a result of you entrusting yourself to God and his word, what faith does is the things hoped for become more substantive, more real. It bears on you and as a result, it causes you to live in a certain way. 
And the author's point is, if you don't entrust yourself to God and his word, you will not persevere. And so what he wants us to see is, and that's what these Old Testament saints have done. They were all imperfect people. It wasn't that they had a great measure of faith. No, they all faltered in so many ways. It is that when they entrusted themselves to God, they found that God was faithful to keep his promises and, and those things hoped for in the future, they became so weighty, so substantive in their lives that they were able to coast on in this world. And so with that in mind, again, not for you to be discouraged by this chapter, but to simply say, God is the one who does it all. He's the one who sustains you and keeps you and hold on to that fact. That's what all these Old Testament saints did. And so last week, or last couple of weeks, we've looked at quite a few examples And we continue on this week in verses 17 through to 22. And we'll continue on in the family of Abraham. Last week we saw some ways in which faith acted out in Abraham's life and in the life of Sarah. And this morning we'll see again how faith continues to work out in the lives of people, what that looks like, both in Abraham's life and his son and his grandson and great-grandson's life. So let's look at some more examples and let's just see how faith behaves as people entrusted themselves to God and his word. So the first thing this morning I want to look at is the fact that faith looks beyond what seems illogical. Faith looks beyond what seems illogical. That's the first thing I want to look at, and that's in verses 17 through to 19. Let me just read 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now if you remember, Abraham was 75 years old when he received the promise from God that he would have descendants. And then he had to wait for 25 years before Isaac was born. The son of promise to be born, he had to wait for 25 years. This was the son who would carry on the promises given to Abraham by God. This was the son through, through whom God's redemptive plan would move forward. This was the son through whom one day the promised redeemer would come. And we saw how it was an, in, an incredible thing last week. Abraham was... A hundred years old, Sarah was 90 years old when they had Isaac. You know, they were such old and frail people, but in the most impossible situations, just like God promised, they had Isaac in their old age. 
And they would have loved the son dearly. And then some years pass. And Isaac grows up. And by now he's quite likely a teenager. And now God appears to Abraham again. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 22 and verse 2. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The son that you dearly love, the son that you waited for all this while, the, your only son of promise, Isaac, I want you to offer that son of yours, your only son, as a burnt offering. I mean, this would have been shocking to Abraham. I mean, first of all, he's, he was being asked to just kill this son of his and then burn him. I mean, as if that wasn't hard enough. Then on top of that, this is the son of promise. So if Isaac is the son through whom God's redemptive promises are going to be carried forward, then how can killing him make any sense? See, at this point, God's promise and God's command seem to contradict each other. Because God said, through Isaac, his plan will move forward. But then for that, at least logically speaking, if that plan was to move forward, Isaac shouldn't die. And yet, if Isaac is to be killed as per God's command, then how could the promise be fulfilled? So there seems to be a contradiction. It seems illogical. But how does Abraham respond? We read that this morning from Genesis 22, and we read that Abraham rose up early the next day. He packed up his donkey with, with everything that was needed for the sacrifice, and he took Isaac and a few of his servants and went on a three-day journey to the land of Moriah, to the mountain where God had told him to sacrifice his son. And when he gets to the place when he gets to the destination, he says to their servants, listen to what he says, Genesis 22, 5. He says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and notice this, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Did you see that? He didn't say just... I will go and worship and come back. He said, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. See, Abraham's not lying to his servants at this point. No, Abraham firmly believed that he and his son Isaac would actually return back. And notice how the author interprets Abraham's belief and action in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. So look back at verse 19, Hebrews 11, and it says, he, that's, why did Abraham do this? Why was he willing to go through this? Because Abraham, he considered 
that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now you could say, but, but how could Abraham believe that? And as a result, be willing to sacrifice his only son? Well, for starters, at this point in his life, Abraham had seen God's faithfulness again and again in delivering him and keeping his promise to preserve him. You know, God rescued uh, even his wife, Sarah, from Pharaoh and Abimelech when Abraham messed up, when he lied to them about who his wife was, when he trusted God and let Lot choose the best land for himself. It was Abraham who was ultimately blessed and even more blessed. But Lot, on the other hand, who chose that land not by faith, that land was destroyed. And there were other instances as well where God was powerfully faithful to him and Abraham was learning to entrust himself more and more to God and his word and not waver. And I would think one of the most striking ways in which God was faithful to keep his promise toward Abraham was the way in which, and we looked at this last week, God brought forth life from the dead womb of his wife and even his own body that was as good as dead. And, and that's how Isaac was born in the first place. And so the author of Hebrews says that he, that is Abraham, considered that God was able to raise him up from the dead. That he considered means he calculated, he reasoned out based on what he knew about God and what God had said. So Abraham reasoned, God is good, God is, has been faithful to me all this while to keep his promises. And if he was faithful to bring life and bring about this precious child, Isaac, out of the dead womb of my wife and my close to dead body, then surely God can bring my beloved Isaac back to life again, even if I were to sacrifice him and kill him. And so, he reasoned this way, and then he entrusted himself to God and his word. And we all know what happens, that when Abraham has got the knife in his hand to kill his son, the angel of the Lord comes and stops him and tells him not to kill Isaac. And God provides a ram in the thicket, and he says, kill that lamb, kill that ram, Instead, God so loved Abraham that he spared his son, Isaac. But what was God doing in all of this? Well, God was testing Abraham. And what God does is, you know, sometimes God brings tests and trials into our lives. And one of the reasons he does that is simply to 
strengthen our faith so that we would even more entrust ourselves to him and his word without wavering. So that if there are other things that we are clinging on to, that we would let go of those things and even more so entrust ourselves to God and his word saying, he is sufficient, he does it all, and I'm entrusting myself to him. And you know, what we see Jesus saying in the Gospels is that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And I think at least in part, one of the ways in which Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ when Christ would come is on this day in Genesis 22. When he entrusted himself, he reasoned, he saw reason to himself about who God is and what he had done and what he had done in the past. And because of that, even though this seemed illogical, he entrusted himself to God and his word, and God truly provided. And because of that, his faith was even more strengthened, such that he saw with spiritual eyes, I know even more sure now that God will one day provide a redeemer to save me from this curse of sin and death and from this world of suffering. He was granted that because he continued to entrust himself to God and his word. So let me ask you, perhaps you are going through something and you're telling yourself, I don't see how this can benefit me and how this contributes to God's eternal purposes and plans. I don't see any good in this. It just seems so illogical that God would allow me to go through some of these things. What do you do in those instances? When the promises of God just seem so far away and everything just seems so illogical about the way God is operating and what you're called to do. I would say this just like what Abraham did. Faith is not blind faith. It is a reasonable faith. Look back now, God has been faithful to you. Look back at the different ways in which he has shown his grace toward you. And beyond that, remember Romans 8.32, that if God did not spare his own son, Jesus Christ, because he loved you while he spared Abraham's son, then will he not give us all things that he has promised? Why would we doubt him? So we reason our faith even in times when just things don't make sense. And then you entrust yourself to God and his word and you will persevere and the things hoped for become more and more substantive in your life and your faith becomes even more unwavering. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who is not a Christian. I want to I thank you for coming. You're always welcome here. But I want to tell you, friend, just what the Bible says. See, God created us as human beings 
to enjoy God and to glorify him. That was our highest good. But man rebelled against God. And because of man's rebellion and sin, man then stood guilty before God. That includes every human being that has ever lived after Adam and Eve. That includes you and me as well. See, because God is a holy God and he cannot tolerate sin. And when you turn away from him, the God of life, there is only death for you. So what you and I deserved is really eternal damnation for rejecting the God of life and joy and everything. Yet this God is also a merciful and gracious God. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world as a mere man and yet fully God. But he lived as a man on this earth and then he died on the cross for the sin of this world. He died as a substitute, paying the price for sinners like you and me. And then he rose up on the third day so that all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus as their hope, as their everything, as the only way that can be made right with God, have hope of eternal life and a life of joy forever. Friend, if that is you, I would ask you to consider what I'm saying to you this morning. And I pray that you would turn to Christ. But for us who are believers, it is a reasonable faith. So when things seem illogical, by faith, we reason out who God is and what he has said and what he has done in the past. And in this way, we can entrust ourselves to him for our future. Now the second thing that we see is that faith overcomes your inclinations. Verse 20. Faith overcomes your inclinations. Verse 20 says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on God, pardon me, future blessings on Jacob and Esau. You know, of all the patriarchs, Isaac is the least colorful, so to speak, compared to others. He's the most passive one. Yet, this very same Isaac is the one, the one and only son of promise of Abraham. And now Isaac bore the responsibility of passing on the covenant promises to his children. And Jacob and Esau that are mentioned here are Isaac's two sons. And while they were still in the womb of his wife, Rebekah, God said in Genesis 25 that the younger will receive the blessing. That is, Jacob would receive the blessing. The, the older would serve the younger and the younger would have that more prominent place and receive the covenant blessings. So both Isaac and Rebekah knew of God's plan from the beginning that the blessing 
the main covenant blessings, the Abrahamic covenant blessings were to go to Jacob. But then Genesis also tells us that Isaac favored Esau, the older son. Because Esau was a manly man and he was a skillful hunter and Isaac loved the meat that he would bring from his kills. And now when Jacob and Esau have grown up to be young men, Isaac is determined to give the covenant blessing to his favored son, Esau, even though God has made it clear that the blessing was to go to Jacob. And we all know the account to some extent of what actually happened with Isaac's blessing. Isaac says, Esau, go out and go get me, go kill an animal and serve me a good meat curry. Maybe not meat curry, whatever it is that he was to cook. And bring it to me so that I can bless you. And in the meantime, at the instigation of his mother, while Esau is away, Jacob brings a cooked animal, wearing Esau's clothes and with his body covered with animal skin to deceive his father Isaac. And mind you, at this time, Isaac is old and he's become blind, so he can't see. And so Jacob succeeds in tricking his father Isaac and Jacob receives the blessing. But what's interesting is the fact that the author of Hebrews focuses on the act that Isaac, by faith, blessed Jacob and Esau. Now you might be thinking, but how can that be? How did Isaac bless Jacob by faith when he was actually deceived into blessing Jacob? I don't see him acting in faith. Well, I think the answer lies in the way Isaac responds after he learns of what actually happens. See, when Isaac learned that he was deceived and that he actually blessed Jacob instead of Esau, he doesn't try to change anything. He doesn't try to revoke his blessing. In fact, Isaac with all the shock and he's trembling and he sees what God has done, says in Genesis 27 and verse 33, yes, and he, that is Jacob, shall be blessed. Why does Isaac say that? Because he recognizes that this is the way it is supposed to be. God has said it. Isaac tried to manipulate it, and yet God has brought it about that these blessings has gone to Jacob only, the covenant blessings, even though Isaac wanted something else. And so there's a sense in which he sees now by faith that yes, the blessings will come to pass. What God has said will come to pass, and it will be through my younger son, Jacob, and not Esau. And so he doesn't revoke the blessing. He doesn't try to alter it or any of that sort. And, we, and it would seem like 
As Isaac recognized that God is sovereign and he cannot oppose God, he submits to God, repents of his sin, and in the following chapter in Genesis 28, when Jacob is fleeing from Esau and going to his mother's house to even find a bride, Jacob, now this time intentionally, knowingly, blesses Jacob with the same blessing. He doesn't, again, revoke it. Because now he believes by faith this blessing is to go to Jacob. So even though what we see here is even though Isaac's sinful desire was to give the promises of God to Esau and not Jacob, God intervened. And only because of God's intervention, Isaac finally believes by faith that the blessings of God's promises would go to Jacob. What's the lesson for us here? That faith overcomes even our inclinations. See, sometimes we can have wrong desires and wrong inclinations. Sinful desires and sinful inclinations. It might be a job opportunity or a business deal that can make you lots of money or make you famous. But there's things involved in that job or business deal that goes against what God's word has said. Or maybe it's a desire for the sinful things in this world, just plain worldly things. Or maybe you are sinful, pardon me, maybe you are single and you have a strong desire for a person that's not a Christian. Or maybe a desire for someone who is someone else's past. Or maybe it's not necessarily sinful desires, but it's good desires. But now these good desires have so blown out of proportion that it's become an unhealthy expectation of what your spouse should be like or what your child should be like, or what your boss should be like, or what your fellow member or your elder should be like. See, there could be good desires, but they've become so out of proportion, so unhealthy, that all you now care about is that this desire is met, and you're not concerned about whether you're honoring the Lord in this. See, in all these cases, when we act out then on these sinful desires and we're not seeking to honor the Lord and seek his word, I can tell you this, things will not go well for us. We might be thinking, oh, our sinful desires will satisfy us, but in the end, it will only lead to our ruin. And often there will be consequences that we would have to live with for the rest of our lives, and we will live with that regret. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, I don't know if it's desires or just even feelings. Maybe some of you sitting here just are angry about things. Angry about the way life turned out. Maybe some of you are just sad because of how things are. 
Maybe some of you are just apathetic. And because of that circumstance and the feeling that you have, you don't want to obey God and you don't want to follow, follow God. What do you do in those instances? Well, Proverbs 3, and we all know this, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths or he will direct your path. Entrust yourself to God and his word. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own desires. Maybe sinful desires, certainly don't lean on it. Maybe it's good desires, but it's just now so going out of proportion, you have no regard for God and honoring God. Entrust yourself to God with all your heart, and he will make your path straight. And the only way then you can overcome these desires is not by your sheer willpower. It's only as you entrust yourself to God and bit by bit you begin to see again the goodness of God in all that he is doing. And so that is how by faith as you entrust yourself to God you overcome even your inclinations. Thirdly, we see that faith it does not depend on your abilities. Faith does not depend on your abilities, verse 21. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, as most of you know, is the schemer. He was always depending on it himself and his self-efforts and grabbing for things and trying to get it for most of his life. Even from birth, when he was coming out of his mother's womb, he pulled on his older twin brother's heel. And that's how he got the name Jacob in the first place. And even as he grew up, he would try to scheme by his own strength and wit and try to get things his own way. He schemed to get his birthright. And then after that, he schemed to get the blessing from his father. He even fought with God, bargained with God and said, if, if God, you go with me and help me, then I will worship you, then I will follow you. Still scheming there. Most of Jacob's life, he schemed and relied on his strength and his wisdom. And most of his life, because of his own reliance on self and his own sin and others even sinning against him just because of the way he was, he experienced a lot of hardship. But towards the end of his life, what you see is Jacob bears a beautiful testimony to the faithfulness of God. He's not scheming anymore. He doesn't try to do anything according to his wisdom or even according to worldly wisdom, and that's what the author wants to point out in verse 21. When it was time to bless Joseph's sons, Joseph brings his older son to Jacob's right hand and his younger son 
to Jacob's left hand. You say, why is that important? Because in those days, the custom was that the older son would get the, the greater blessing and the birthright, and that would come from the right hand. But interestingly, even though Joseph brings the older one this side and the younger one this side, Jacob crosses his hands to bless the two sons of Joseph. And Joseph, in fact, seeing that Jacob has done this, even tries to move his father's hand away, you know, almost saying, Father, no, it's not this way. And Jacob simply responds by saying, I know my son. I know what I've done. I know what I'm doing. See, Joseph was thinking according to worldly customs that the older son would get the birthright and the greater blessing. But Jacob, as he has come to the end of his life, even through all the scheming and everything that he's done, he's finally come to the point where he understands how God's, God works and he's fully submitted to that and content with that. Because again, as far as he was concerned, and he would have understood this, it was Isaac, the younger one, and not Ishmael, the older, who was blessed. In his own life, it was Jacob, the younger, and not Esau, who was blessed. Even with his sons, Reuben, his firstborn, had forfeited the birthright and the blessing of the firstborn. So by now, understanding God's ways, Jacob submits to God's ways and gives the right-hand blessing to the younger son, Ephraim. And he blesses the two sons of Joseph. And notice again the little detail that the author of Hebrews includes in verse 21, where he says, he blessed Joseph's two sons, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So the picture is this. Jacob, at this point, is so frail and so weak that he can barely sit up. And he's really leaning on one of the bedposts because he can't even sit up. He's so physically weak and he's about to die. And one of the last things that Jacob does on his deathbed is bless the sons of Joseph in this unconventional way. And then he worships God, the author says. It's a beautiful picture. What you see here at the end of Jacob's life is that he's no longer scheming. He's no longer depending on his wits or even the wisdom of the world. He has learned to entrust himself to God and his promises and his ways. And when he was at his weakest, physically speaking, Jacob's faith is now strong and unwavering in God's promise and his ways. That's what you see here. The basic lesson here is that the life of faith is not dependent on our wisdom or strength or skill. It is solely dependent on God. Because the life of faith is simply entrusting ourselves to God and his word and his ways. You know, God allows us to fail. Just like Jacob failed so many times. 
And that's not because God is a cruel God. No, it's because God is gracious and he wants to show us, as he did show Jacob, that it's not about our strength and our abilities because that will get us nowhere. No, it's about his strength and depending on him. And God's strength becomes even more evident when we are weak. So brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and you're weak physically speaking, or you don't think you're that clever, or you think, oh, I don't have too many skills, like that person or that person or that person, oh, you don't need to be concerned about that. Why? Because the life of faith is simply entrusting yourself to God and his word and living accordingly. It's not about you. It's about God and simply entrusting yourself to him. And the wonderful thing is Jacob, the schemer, who always depended so much on his own abilities and strength, at the end of his life, you know, probably last few breaths of his life, as he's leaning against the bedpost and blessing the two sons of Joseph. Because of how he finally submitted himself and entrusted himself to God and his word and his ways, Jacob the schemer was given the privilege of shining his faith when he was at his weakest physically. And I would say it's the greatest legacy that Jacob could have left behind for his family, for his children and his grandchildren saying, God is enough. He is powerful. He is faithful to his promise. So just trust him with all your life. Even though I have been a late bloomer. Now the last thing, and we'll quickly go through this point. Faith looks beyond the grave. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph, as most of us know, he was betrayed by his brothers when he was 17 years old, and he was sold as a slave, and he ended up in Egypt. First as the main caretaker in a prominent, important minister named Potiphar in Egypt, but because of the lies of Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison, and he's in prison for many years. But then through a series of events that God orchestrated, Joseph is finally freed from prison, and God raises him up to the position of being the prime minister of Pharaoh. And once he becomes prime minister, he's, he's now in a position of great power. A lot of people know him. He's quite famous, and he certainly has lots of money as well. And then there's a severe famine in the land, and again, through a series of events, God brings about that God, Joseph is now able to get his father Jacob and all his other brothers and their entire family to now move to Egypt and settle down in Egypt. Now Joseph has come to the end of his life, and listen to these words from Genesis 50, 24 to 26. It says, and Joseph said to his brothers, 
I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of, his, out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. I mean, just look at Joseph at this point. He's, he's about to die, but he's fully convinced that God will keep his promises. And so he reassures his brothers, telling them that God will take care of them and bring them out of Egypt and take them back to the promised land, just as God has said. This will happen one day. And so confident is Joseph that God will bring them back to the land of Canaan that he makes his brothers promise to take his bones and bury his bones in Canaan whenever God would come and deliver them from Egypt. This is a remarkable thing that Joseph says. Because if you think about it, Joseph was only spent the first 17 years of his life in Canaan. And it was not the best of years. He had a lot of trouble from his brothers during his younger years. And the rest of his life was in Egypt. And when he dies, he's 110 years old. So you can imagine how many years he lived in Egypt. And he's held a great position there and great riches. But then Joseph insists that his bones be carried back to Canaan. And his insistence this way shows that he believed one day he would be resurrected from the dead and he would possess the land of Canaan too. And that would be a time when the land of Canaan would be free from the curse of sin and death. Or you could say, as the author has said before, Joseph too was looking for the city built by God. See, despite his prominence and riches in Egypt, Joseph knew that his home, even though he was there for so long and he had all the comforts and everything else, Joseph knew his home was not in Egypt. His home was in the land that God had promised. And even as he was about to die, he was certain that God's promise to him and his people would not die. He would die, but God's promises toward him would not die. It would continue on beyond the grave. Why? Because God had said it. And he fully entrusted himself to what God had said. You know, while a few centuries later when God delivers Israel, they take their bones, you know, the Israelites take Joseph's bones and bury it in Canaan. But when Joseph died in Egypt... At that point, the immediate time, he was embalmed and put in a tomb. And so to the Israelites, this tomb of Joseph would have been a tangible reminder of the hope of God's deliverance. Because remember, Joseph said this and he said, when God does this, take my bones from here out of this tomb and take it to the promised land. And so this tomb would have been a great reminder of hope. And I would say this, we don't have a tomb like this to give us hope. In fact, we have an empty tomb because Jesus rose from the dead. 
And because Jesus rose from the dead, all who put their trust in Jesus also have hope that they too will be resurrected after death and ultimately delivered from the curse of sin and death and will be in the city of God with Jesus and will be given all the rewards that are associated with it. See, I think the main point from this section in verses 17 through 22 is this. Regardless of your life situation, whether you have all the riches, all the smarts in the world, or you're poor, and you're weak, and you have nothing, what matters in this life of faith is simply this, that you entrust yourself to God and His Word. It's not about your strength or weakness. It's about God and his strength and his wisdom. And so what are we to do? Cling to the fact of who God is and what he has revealed about himself through his son. Cling to the reality that Jesus has done it all and he's continuing to sustain you and he will ultimately save you. Cling to that confession of faith you know as we close we're going to sing this song tis so sweet to trust in jesus and i was singing it this this past week and um, there's a line in there that the hymn, hymn writer says and even as we sing it you'll notice it it says tis so sweet to Trust in Jesus, how I've proved him over and over, over and over. You kind of think, what, what does that mean? What is the hymn writer saying? Well, what he's saying is, yes, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. You see, I'm weak and I'm frail. But through it all, I have proved by my own inabilities as I've clung to him and trusted in him of how sweet it is to trust in him. And in this way, through my inabilities and my nothingness, I have proved him to be more over and over that he is sweet and sufficient enough. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for eternal life in and through Christ. And we thank you that as a result of this eternal life, we now can respond in faith. And it is you who even give us the grace to exercise this faith. Lord, help us, no matter what we are going through, to not be discouraged, but simply entrust ourselves to you and your word. And particularly your word regarding your son. And through the thick and thin of life, as we entrust ourselves to Jesus, we will find more and more how sweet it is to trust in him. For we begin to taste more and more something of the substance of the things hoped for. Lord, help us, forgive us for when we fall back on ourselves and look back on ourselves and teach us by your grace to continue to hold on to the fact that it is Christ himself who is holding on to us. 
Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our lives as a result of this and keep our faith from wavering. For we pray all this for Jesus' namesake. Amen.